There's this fantastic quote I found from uh, Paula Freire. He said, uh, it is a time of confrontation, this transition. The time of transition of the old society to a new one that doesn't exist yet. That's being created with a confrontation of the ghosts. And I worry about how long it's going to take to get past the ghosts. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, and parent of two kind of amazing children. Every week I do a deep dive into some of the challenging questions that face educators today, and I offer practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they live in. You know, all this month in the community, we've been talking about the theme of story, how the story of school and education are changing, and what we need to do to help create a new story for teaching and learning moving forward. And so along those lines, in this week's podcast, I interview longtime blogger, author, and futurist Brian Alexander to help provide some larger context for how life stories are changing in general and how we educators might help our students navigate the next 20 or 30 years of transition. As you heard in that opening snip, and as you'll hear throughout this conversation, we are in and we're heading into some challenging times on lots of different levels. But despite the obvious headwinds, what I appreciated more than anything about this conversation is Brian's unyielding faith in Generation Z, that group of late teen and early 20-somethings in which he and I both happen to have two children. Our question now is, how do we prepare those kids to flourish in this moment and how do we prepare the next generation of students that are coming after them? So that conversation is coming up, but real fast, I want to remind you to check out our Modern Learners community if you haven't already done so. MLC now has over a thousand members from around the world who are having powerful conversations and sharing their own next steps for creating classrooms where modern, engaged learning thrives. It's a respectful, safe place that's away from the noise of Twitter and Facebook and it gives you a space to think and engage and learn at a deep level. Head on over to modernlearners.community to join us. And when you do, check out the podcast topic to get more resources around our conversation today and around all the podcasts that we'll be doing in the future. Now, don't forget, at the end of this podcast, I'll be back with three things you can do right now to wrap your practice more fully around some of the ideas that we talk about. But for now, let's get right to my conversation with Brian Thanks for listening, everyone, and enjoy. So, Brian, thanks so much for taking some time. Really appreciate your, uh, first of all, I appreciate your wisdom and your constant blogging about the world. It's always a learning opportunity for me when I see your stuff coming through my feed. And I uh, just want to let you know at the outset that I really appreciate that. Now, I was excited to find out today, actually, that you have a book coming out in the fall. And it's titled Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education is going to be, I'm sure, interesting to read as all of your blog posts are. But I guess let's just start with the big meta question in terms of the story of higher ed. What is changing about higher education right now? And what can we expect moving forward into the future in terms of the story that we tell about the higher education experience? Tressie McMillan Cotton refers to uh, the higher education gospel, you know, the idea that uh, higher education is a good it's, it's a great good, and everyone should have some, and the more the better. And I think we've been singing that gospel for a couple of generations. I mean, arguably as far back as uh, the late 50s. And we've really, really pushed hard on that. 
and the results have been very impressive in a lot of ways. The total number of students taking classes in America's colleges and universities has just gone up steadily since, well, over that period and definitely since the late 80s. And in many ways, we still adhere to that gospel, but it's starting to stutter. We're starting to see some um, disbelief, and it's possible the narrative will mutate. And it, it's happening for a few reasons. Uh, one is that the total number of people enrolled in American higher education has gone down uh, for the past six years, since uh, 2013, since 2012, 2013. Uh, that's largely been in the for-profit sector, which you know, for-profit higher education has been around since the 19th century in the U.S. It really took off in the 90s, in the first decade of the 21st century, and then it's, uh, it's just been dropping like a stone uh, ever since. But also community college enrollment has uh, declined. I mean, community colleges are usually counter-cyclical to unemployment, so um, unemployment has been low. And as a result, fewer people are going to community colleges. But even state schools uh, have seen, generally speaking, have seen enrollment basically plateau or only trickle up a little bit. So that's one piece. It may be that we've, uh, that we've just stopped growing and we're going backwards. One key thing about those students who have left the for-profit sector and have left community colleges, they're not going to anywhere else. They're just leaving higher education. There's also the great fear, as you know, about uh, debt. And uh, the student debt crisis is just, just enormous and continues to expand and hits us in all kinds of ways. There's a, I'm blanking on the name of it, but there was a TV game show where contestants could play to have their student loans forgiven. I just saw a cute cartoon, which was um, she had a stereotypical old man in an old folks home uh, getting a giant cake. And one of the attendants says, is that for his 100th birthday? And they said, no, no, that was yesterday. Today, this is him paying off his last student loan. <laughs> and that, that dread, that fear is uh, sometimes often overhyped by, uh, by the media. But it's, uh, it's a serious one. And it's interesting that no other country in the world is doing this. It's kind of like private health insurance. It's one of those... Uh, American exceptions that doesn't seem to inspire the world. Another thing on top of this is now a kind of latent partisan politicization of higher education, where the, generally speaking, Democrats remain fairly committed to higher ed. I'm saying generally and fairly because you have a lot of Democrats, uh, most recently President Obama, who desperately wanted to reform higher ed, even if higher ed didn't want to be reformed. But now you're seeing a growing sense on the right, that an argument that uh, people should skip college and either go right into the workforce or do vocational education instead. And so it may be that we are at a gigantic turning point and we're seeing that, that story stop being told uh, of everyone needing higher ed. And it may be now it's just some people need higher ed. But that would be a huge, huge shift. Well, I mean, that story is deeply rooted, obviously, as a parent. I know that my oldest kid, my daughter, didn't go to college right after high school, and people were shocked. They were concerned. <laughs> they were, you know, is she okay type of concern. Um, she's, you know, she's ended up taking, moving toward a degree online, which has not been a real great experience for her, but because of what she wants to get into, she needs a piece of paper. But, you know, I, I, I just wonder how you think that parents react or parents perceive these kind of changes happening and the extent to which they are comfortable with 
maybe a different narrative that is is coming out of this. I mean, you know, we we hear a lot about obviously jobs being up for grabs. Nobody really knows what the future looks like in terms of jobs and and just all of this uncertainty that's happening. College has always seemed like it is the certain path to some sense of stability, but that may not be the case any longer. So I guess that's a convoluted way of asking what happens to this story? I mean, how does the story change in people's minds, do you think? Have you heard this uh, acronym VUCA? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that too, because I know you've used that in your writing. Yeah, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. I mean, that's uh, you know, in many ways we're heading towards a VUCA world. Uh, I mean, there are some things that aren't VUCA or VUCA fied right now. I mean, the, the biggest one that you know I'm obsessed with is demography. Mm hmm. We're, we're producing fewer and fewer kids, often for fantastic reasons. It's one of the great stories of all time, really. But we're already starting to see K through 12 populations begin to uh, shrink a little bit. And that's right. really going to fall in about two to three years. And that's happening worldwide. So when you ask about parents and their attitudes, I think, well, let's assume that we're talking about parents of, of teenagers, um, the traditional age undergraduate population. Uh, and that's maybe 60 to 70% of uh, higher education in the U.S. The rest are adults, so I'll just put them to one side for now. I think in many ways, parents are still committed to this because there are not very clear alternatives. Going to work in a skilled trade, um, say HVAC or, or woodwork or uh, plumbing, is clearly remunerative for uh, a good number of people. Uh, we know that the average age of woodworkers is shooting way up and we're at risk of losing a generation of skilled wood people. But we, we have about a generation of training that says we don't want to go to school for this and we don't want to touch this stuff. The idea of, you know, shop craft is soul craft. Uh, what's his name? There's a, a TV host who does uh, tough jobs. Is it Mike Broco or something like that? That idea hasn't really taken hold in large numbers yet. I right. Think I think a lot of parents still want to have, um, they want their 18-year-old to go away from home and have a residential experience. And I, I think that's increasingly a niche experience. You know, we have more and more adults going to college and the 18-year-olds, like your daughter, uh, may see that this doesn't make sense. I mean, in some in some parts of the world, uh, Ireland, for example, it's pretty common to have a gap year after 12th grade and to do something, go travel, learn a language, make something creative, uh, work. And so, you know, we may see more of that. But I, I think parents are still clinging to this. I think the real changes are happening among adults uh, who are students, um, who have less patience uh, for some of the apparatus around undergraduate education who really want to go back to school to either learn, they want to learn now, or they want to reskill or recredential up. For them, online learning is often um, just a, at least as good uh, an option as face-to-face. -face. So I, I think parents are going to hang on to this for a while. In effect, you know, especially if they're economically uh, aspirated. Right. And then the hierarchy of higher educational institutions will still play a role. You know, people, you know, they go with the U.S. News and World Report chart. They just want to put people... Right. As, as Harvard-ish as possible. One of the most concise 
retelling or, or kind of reimagination of the story that I've ever heard comes from Stephen Downs, who I know you know. And, and he has a great line where he says, we have to start thinking of, as an, of an education as something that we create for ourselves rather than something that is delivered to us or given to us. I mean, how do you, do you see that as part of what education looks like moving forward, that it's going to be more and more kind of piecing it together rather than going to one place for, you know, a four or six year experience or something like that. I mean, since we do have access to so much knowledge and people and information and technologies now. I think these are two different things. I mean, on the one hand, we're talking about the, the ancient, I mean, you know, pre-modern idea of the self-taught, self-driven learner, the autodictat, versus the idea of uh, kind of compulsory schooling, um, involuntary education. And um, I know where Stephen phones on this. We now have more options than ever to be a learner. I mean, this is in many ways the golden age of self-directed learning. And if you think about just what we have access to now, it's, it's just phenomenal. Even with all the problems of, uh, of online life, from, from trolls to you know, fake news, we still have access to more information, more media, more fellow learners, more teachers. I mean, it's extraordinary, literally extraordinary. But still, autodictats remain, in many ways, a small portion of the population. And at the same time, we also, as a society, and most societies are committed to the idea of not just compulsory education, but also of compulsory education in certain topics. So, I mean, voters upon voters, policymakers upon policymakers say, yes, we want students to go to school because they need to become more numerate. They need to learn citizenship. They need to learn coding. They need to learn community, whatever. We really believe in educating people, if you will, against their will, because we think it's for the better. Uh, It's for the greater good and will improve everybody's lives. So that tension is still there and you can see it in everything. You can see it in the the debates over Summerhill in the mid 20th century. You can see the arguments over MOOCs and so on. But the second part that you're talking about, this question of of, uh, piecing together education in in some ways that, that goes beyond this dynamic, because you can think about Stanford referred to as kind of learning episodes. Either Stanford or Georgia was referring to learning episodes. So, you know, maybe I just, I, I went to university when I was 18, had my undergraduate experience, but then let's say um, I have a degree, I have a career, and then 20 years into it, I decide, you know, I really want to get up to speed on, co- on coding. I don't want to rely on my uh, staff for this, or I don't want to outsource it. So I'll spend a year and I'll learn C++ and I'll do it however, online or face-to-face or wherever. And I get that. Maybe I get a certificate, maybe I get a degree. And then 20 years later, I decide that I really, really want to master French. Uh, so I go back in that. And then when I, you know, when I turn 70, I'm nervous about cognitive disorders and cognitive decline. So if you're going to learn something truly strange and difficult in order to keep my brain as fresh as possible and fend off Alzheimer's, et cetera, so I'll go back to school and uh, I'll learn, you know, say, um, uh, nanotechnology or thoracic surgery. You know, that idea of episodes is interesting. It's not, it's not the usual sequence, you know, of, uh, of events. And I think we'll see more and more of that, especially, you know, you think about larger contexts, we think about the huge instability in the labor market. You know, there's this idea that when you and I were kids, the, you know, it was that kind of the, the madman idea. You know, you go to college, you get a degree, you get a job, you work for an employer in a career for life, and you retire. And now that's, that's a marginal experience. Now the labor experience is much more to have a sequence of careers along with a sequence of employers often overlapping. 
Uh, so that just pushes for more and more education. But we don't we don't really have a good story about that yet. We don't have a, um, expectation for it. In fact, we we kind of have the opposite, where we, for example, we punish community colleges for um, not having enough completion, whereas in many ways they're doing just fine. Students take one semester or one class or a few at the community college and they learn. We have to have a, a new story for that. But, you know, you can assemble those pieces in multiple places. You know, I could, I could, take, um, I could take thoracic surgery with Dr. Richardson. <laughs> you wouldn't want to do that, I don't think. We know Dr. Richardson, but maybe I do that face-to-face as an apprenticeship. Or, right. There's a and, lot of assemble these together, but we need a, we need a story about that. And, and what's interesting too, you know, I've been reading a lot, Yuval Harari does we're in between stories and a, a lot of people are just kind of looking at the world right now and trying to figure out what happens at a moment when the old story is kind of breaking, but the new story isn't clear yet. And that kind of ambiguity is really unsettling for a lot of people. And obviously there's a, you know, as you kind of mentioned, there's this higher even meta story about life that we go through these stages in life, which are now those are breaking too. I mean, people are working into their seventies and into their eighties sometimes. And so it is an interesting moment that we're in. And I wonder if you have a sense of how many people in education realize that we're in this moment that they're kind of trying to learn through this moment of ambiguity, or do you think most of them still tend to cling to something that they, they know and that, that they may be experienced? Yeah, I, I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have said few people. Um, but I think over the past decades, some things have happened which really shocked education. I mean, the whole enterprise, I mean, for profits, I mean, K through 12, I mean, military education, the whole thing. Uh, starting with 2008, and the financial crash, uh, which we still haven't really reckoned with. You know, we didn't prosecute anybody. We still, it's a kind of unspoken thing that happened, but that really shocked us. And that changed a lot of behavior. It helped drive student debt up, for example. And it really gave us a sense of, wow, maybe this you know, growing economy isn't a reliable thing. The next was uh, the election of Donald Trump, uh, which really shocked a lot of people. I mean, educators tend towards the Democratic Party. And a lot of people were really horrified by that and thrust into that VUCA world of uncertainty. And then the, the questions about technology in general. I mean, automation's a big one, but also anxieties over social media, uh, anxieties over gaming, mobile devices, so-called uh, technology addiction. And I think that gave people a lot of uncertainty about where, where progress was, take, was taking us. You know, if America is being hauled back into the past by Trump or in some awful direction, uh, if technology takes us forward, but into a way that may leave humans behind, I think a lot of educators right now are, at the very least, anxious, if not openly terrified. I find I've, I work with hundreds of colleges and uh, universities across the U.S. Um, and in other countries, and I find huge amounts of uncertainty and um, sometimes outright panic. And some of it, some of it is uh, ill-formed or uh, doesn't take into account practical things. 2010, I led a workshop and some people from Harvard were complaining that about their budget being cut. You know, that's, that's not a, a major concern of mine, but, um, but I, I think a lot of educators are really worried right now. Do you think that that's their biggest concern is, is money, being able to continue to fund the programs, or do you just think that it's... I think it's one big concern. It's one that I dwell on a lot, but I don't think it's the biggest. Um, I think depending on where you are in the country and which educational stratum you're in, 
Uh, sometimes it's the changing um, racial makeup of the U.S. Uh, sometimes it's the changing uh, religious dynamic of the U.S. You know, for example, right now, um, you know, listening to discussions about the religiosity of Generation Z, which is unusually low for America, or you think about the anxieties over Catholic colleges and universities, over the clerical um, sex abuse scandals, for example. I think people are also very, very interested by technology. I mean, you know, there's this idea that we've had uncritical embrace of technology, which has never been true right. uh, in a way. Um, and there's a lot of like, hilariously gothic uh, fears and dreads around technology. And there's some informed criticism. And people are, people are nervous about, uh, as I mentioned before, about their mobile devices. They're worried about screen time. They're worried about computer gaming. They're worried about social media giants. They're, they're never worried about Apple because Apple has a kind of magic shield around it. But they're, they're, they're concerned about this. I think also um, politics in general. Uh, Democrats are horrified by, uh, by Trump. A lot of Republicans are terrified by uh, what they see as the resurgent specter of socialism. Populism left and right is a, is a kind of punk achievement right now and shocks a lot of people. And then there's concerns about uh, geopolitics as well. Um, people are afraid of Russia. People are afraid of China, North Korea. I mean, it's... Uh, and on top of this, too, you get the classic intergenerational tensions where, you know, it's easy to see older people, and by that, I mean boomers, complaining about kids these days. Um, <laughs> and that's, I, I, I find having boom, hearing boomers complain about kids is, for me, always just reliable comedy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's almost always completely unconscious, you know. Right. Not, not realizing the irony of it. And, uh, and kids these days are, are fantastic. I mean, you, know, you think about the world they grew up in, you know, that the 2008 financial crash happened when they were children, teenagers. You think about the specter of global warming, which they know about, they mostly believe in, and they know that adults aren't stopping it. You know, they look at uh, a wide variety of, of horrible events brought to them by multiple media channels. And uh, I'm surprised that they're not revolting in the streets. In fact, they're doing yeah working really hard at being creative. I, I don't think we deserve Generation Z. Hey, I want to take a quick break from our conversation to let you know about what I think is the most powerful professional learning destination for educators online, and that is our Modern Learners Community Plus. You know, at a time when change is accelerating, when social media is getting increasingly toxic, and when we're faced with big questions in education that demand serious answers, MLC Plus offers a safe, respectful, intelligent space on the web to help you make sense of what to do next. MLC Plus is about community. We're building a movement to change the experience of schooling for kids around the world to better prepare them for the world today. Our community builds our collective and individual capacity to do that. MLC Plus is about challenge. Our carefully selected links and theme-driven conversations are meant to push your thinking, to get you to scrutinize your practice, and to catalyze your journey to reimagine education and schooling. But most of all, MLC Plus is about learning. Through our diverse book studies, our live coaching sessions with the Modern Learners team, our constant conference, our special workshops and masterclasses, your learning doesn't have to stop. And since all of our interactions are archived for later viewing, it's your learning on your schedule. 
So if you're looking for more quality conversations with a global lens within a passionate community of educators, all in one respectful, easy to access, time-saving space, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than MLC+. Head on over to modernlearners.community right now, and let's change the story of education for the modern world together. And now, back to our conversation. That kind of brings me to a post that you wrote a couple days ago and, and uh, about climate. And I, I just want to touch briefly on that. One, you know, we talk a lot about in Change School and in the community about the C's, you know, the, the creativity, communication, critical thinking, all those things. We, we add one called coping. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that is a fundamental skill that I think our kids are going to have to have. How do we cope? with the things, how do we cope, but also how do our kids cope with what's coming at them? Because if you buy into the idea that this is a VUCA world where there's a lot of volatility and uncertainty and all those types of things, that's gonna require them to have some skills and some tools to, to deal with that. So this post you wrote, I thought was really interesting because you titled it, I think, Climate Change and Behavior Modification um, and the Uses and Limits of Shaming. And this was something that I tweeted out a couple of days ago too. I said, you know, are, are you guys, are, are we ready for the scare, the scary narratives that are gonna come down the pike here? Very quickly, I think, and that are gonna be in an attempt to get people to change their behavior immediately because there is this growing, I think, tangible urgency now that a lot of people are feeling about climate. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the implications of climate in all of this, right? Because I do think that without question is the existential narrative now in terms of all of this stuff kind of falls under that umbrella. But then I also wonder if you could speak a little bit to this maybe idea of behavior modification when it comes to education. What might that look like? I mean, how do we get people to begin to think differently about the narrative given the circumstances that we find ourselves in now, given this kind of in-between moment that we're in? Well, let me start by, um, by returning to your coping. Um, I think there are two intertwined mechanisms for coping that I, I think uh, we need to really focus on. And one of them is science fiction and the other one was futures thinking. You know, I come from a background of, uh, of literature, that's where my PhD is, and science fiction is still usually considered to be that kind of like obnoxious kid sister that no one wants to bring to the party. Science fiction has conquered the world in terms of mass media, but we're still a little snooty about it, which is unfortunate because science fiction is a fantastic tool for coping and for thinking about the future. I mean, you're trying to think, what can climate change do to the world? How can we respond? Well, this has been played out again and again and again in stories, novels, and films. Kim Stanley Robinson has this fantastic book called New York 2140, imagining New York City after the, that's flooded, like Venice, uh, after the sea levels had risen. Paolo Bacigalupi has a couple of really good novels about life after, a, you know, basically untreated uh, climate change. And they, they give us a lot of tools for this. And so I, I think we really need to uh, um, take science fiction more seriously. And I, I think futurist thinking is, is tough to do. We, we tend not to think well about the future or at all. We tend to assume the future is going to be more like the same. And uh, it's hard to get into that state of mind. Educators are perfectly placed to help this because we are, among other things, about the imagination. And we love helping people expand their imagination. So I think helping people think through science fiction and futures is a uh, a really, really powerful way of coping uh, and thriving. Climate change right now, I mean, I'm starting to work on this as a, as a major theme in my own work. 
it, it, it has a whole series of, of impacts and it depends in part on your time frame. I mean, if we're looking out, say, the next two generations, then you think about stuff like, well, Will, you're in New Jersey, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, you think about the impact on, on the coastal world. Yeah. We have to respond, you know, do we fortify areas? Do we, do we move inland? Uh, think about how much of American higher education is based on the coasts. You know, think about New England, you think about Stanford, right? Um, so we have to think about this very hard strategically. You know, I went to uh, the University of Michigan in, in the 1970s when oil prices were getting high. They decided to make a second campus that would be very energy efficient called North Campus. And uh, they spent a lot of money and a lot of time building this up. And then halfway through, you know, to the point where the construction costs were greater than the energy savings, so, you know, kind of splitting the campus that way. That's a little example, but we have to think about this kind of thing. You know, when do we have... Princeton moved to Iowa or something like that. We have, to, uh, we have to think hard about this. But also we have to think about the many, many echoes and repercussions of it. For example, do we decide to take mitigation seriously? Uh, does that involve geoengineering? So do we think about things like you know, seeding the oceans or the atmosphere with sulfur? Do we think about building um, a shade uh, in near earth orbit in order to reduce uh, some of the uh, flow of sunlight? Do we think about large-scale projects on the Earth's surface? If we do, then education has to be all about this. Not just teaching people that these things matter, but we're the, we are the source of all the training. This is where the engineers will come from, the Earth scientists, the computer scientists, uh, and so on. Um, so, you know, we have to really commit to that kind of, uh, if you will, the intellectual production. Um, right. Uh, at the same time, we also realize that this is going to be the source of a great deal of cultural and political instability, which we're already seeing, uh, climate change denial. Um, but we, given this impact, I mean, history teaches us we should see a wide variety of cultural responses, religious responses, for example, uh, political movements. So education has to swim in that sea. And not for the first time. I mean, you know, biologists have always had a struggle in the U.S. teaching evolution, evolutionary biology, in a world that has intelligent design of creationism. Um, you know, literature people have always had to worry about the text they teach. So uh, in 1999 or so, um, um, I taught a wonderful unit on water politics um, in Louisiana. And uh, this is before Katrina happened. Uh, and it was very interesting to see how my students responded to the stories of drought as well as stories of the opposite so we have to we have to think hard about how we're going to we're going to balance and meet this but also as we start seeing more climate impacts on societies we may have different student bodies so you know does uh, for example if we're teaching in ohio do we start seeing an uptick in people who want to move away from the coasts uh, in new jersey and again to pick on you from jersey do you start seeing climate refugees come from the American Southeast or from Europe or from Africa. I mean, it's possible we'll see a widespread global migration, in which case educators have to figure out how to teach populations that are changing rapidly. And maybe they don't meet them in person. Maybe this is something where, you know, a couple of years ago, there was some mockery about uh, MOOC providers who are trying to produce MOOC content aimed at uh, refugees, uh, Middle Eastern, North African refugees in Europe. And this is mocked as being inappropriate. And I think it was actually a very good idea. You know, if you're a refugee, how do you keep learning? Right. So I think this is really going to spill over, which brings us to behavior modification. I use the term uh, very precisely uh, because this is 
what we're really talking about. We're not talking about uh, wealthy people deciding to buy a Prius instead of a, a truck. Um, we're talking about the desirability of getting human beings to change what they do. That's the only way we can respond to climate change. And it, to do this, we have all kinds of tools at our disposal. My blog post was about shame. Right. And that's, you know, that's, uh, um, that's a cultural tool. Uh, where do we have political coercion? Uh, what are you talking about? Carbon tax. But then, you know, how do we, you know, how do you convince people? I, I'm a frequent flyer. I fly all over the world very frequently. Should I start changing that? Should I start training more across the U.S.? Uh, should I be doing more virtual events? I, the answer is personally, I'm trying to, but it's actually. Right. What are the other tools of behavior modification that we have? And then, of course, is this wrong? I mean, should we instead just put the case to the to the global population and say this is happening? We need to do stuff about it. We should do it democratically. Um, these are huge issues for educators to wrestle with. Yeah, not easy. And I think what, uh, certainly another one is going to be fear. I, I think that I, I, I just see that more than almost all the others is that we're, we're going to have to make people scared as hell <laughs> in order to get them to change. And I, I, I just want to kind of twist that into education just for a second, that behavior modification piece for educators, right? Because I think that there's a growing sense that we have to do things differently, mm -hmm. um, that the kind of traditional way that we educate kids is not really preparing them for this VUCA world. In fact, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, should education be more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous? Should our environments, should we build environments intentionally that are like that to situate kids into those types of experiences so that when they leave us, mm -hmm. uh, again, it comes back to that coping idea. But so, I mean, what's your sense in terms of changing behavior of educators who in many cases are going to be wedded to those traditional stories because that's where they're comfortable that's where you know that's that's they know that they can be successful in those spaces even though the growing sense is that that traditional narrative is going to break and really isn't serving our kids the way that they need to be served i had a very very small i mean really seriously tiny instance of this yesterday we had um, on the future transform our guest was um, brett besson who is a professor of media studies at austin college and he also, for the past year, helped build their esports team. And it was very interesting, just talking about what, you know, what are esports, how do you support them, very, very interesting stuff. But at one point, he mentioned a distinction that I thought was really subtle, but hadn't occurred to me. They were asking him, okay, so what computer games do your students play? He said, actually, it depends. And it took him five minutes to break this down, saying, you know, they may be playing League of Legends or Fortnite or this, and it will change from year to year. And then it occurred to another speaker, wow, that's so different from basketball you know people it's still basketball and it's gonna and and one of the pleasures of playing football or basketball or hockey is the tradition you know you can go back to a century or more and and see people playing this but his program esports is a, a mini vuca educational instance where it keeps changing and changing and changing i think educators have to deal we have to embrace this and it's very difficult because we join education in part because of its stability. Um, you know, you have systems of tenure, for example, you have uh, large bureaucracies that among other things provide stability. You know, K through 12 publics, you have, you know, the state apparatus, the local apparatus and so on. Um, we're really used to that. And in many ways in the classroom, 
while we do conduct change in learners' minds and their lives, we also provide a sense of durability. I mean, our schools are designed to look like that. You know, right. Large high schools, which look like, they look like factories, but also they, they look stable. You know, they're brick or steel. Uh, you think about the, the classic uh, liberal arts college, which looks like uh, Oxford or Hogwarts, designed to look old and durable. Um, you know, I, I think in many ways, we have to get out of that mindset and start thinking more about uncertainty and uh, how things change. One of the ways that educators can do that, that we do well, is by talking with each other um, in person and through social media and online technologies in general. I do want to go back to fear, though. I mean, fear is a, is a very interesting motivator. It's a good one in that uh, it can provoke people to do certain things, but it is limited. It, it wears out after a time. People become accustomed to it. And we also, it can, it can backfire. People say, I don't want to be scared. I want to be inspired. I want hope. I mean, this was that great moment of the Obama presidency in 2008, 2009, when the economy caved in and he brought this message of hope. I mean, that's just a real signal uh, development. So, you know, if you're, if you're educating eight-year-olds or 18-year-olds, you can't just tell them, look out, we have a world that's melting. Um, right. You have to say, and here's what you can do that's awesome in it. And here's how you can stand out. So we have to, we have to do both. And that's, that's a wide emotional range. And I think we can do it. So you kind of mentioned this, but I, I wonder as we kind of wind this down a little bit, how do we build our capacity as educators to track some of these changes that are happening? And I mean, aside from reading your blog, <laughs> which I highly recommend, by the way, for every educator, because it does give a, a, such a great context for a lot of the, the things that are happening on a bigger level than uh, you know, just what's happening in our school buildings. But how do we do that? People are time stressed, people are already uh, out of bandwidth, and certainly a lot of these issues that we're talking about here are just huge and kind of of the brain melt variety. So what suggestions might you have for educators who are thinking about these things but not really sure how to track them into the future and how to stay abreast of them? Will, when, when you and I started uh, looking into what we called at the time Web 2.0. Oh, I remember that. That was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were thinking it was this new new paradigm of media and it was replacing the old. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but one problem is that the, the old still, we still cling to it. You know, it's interesting. You, you look at TV news and my... My first bit of advice to any human in the United States is to stop watching TV news. <laughs> which, which actually I have done for the last six months, and I'm a much happier person, by the way. But <laughs> smarter, I mean, which is hard to imagine because you're already terrified. Right. But, you know, the median age of a TV news viewer is in their 60s. The median age, right? <laughs> that's crazy. And that's, that's really powerful. I mean, people complain about Trump's use of Twitter, but uh, his real focus is Fox News. And... You know, I, I think a, a key thing is to get away from TV news and then to embrace 21st century strategies. So it may, depending on the person, it may be that you curate a list of 10 podcasters and that fits in with you because you have a long commute, say, or you walk dogs for a long time, or as I did, you know, work out in the garden for a while. Perhaps you use uh, Twitter and you curate a set of Twitter lists that let you drag in information. Uh, I'm a huge RSS fan. I still use RSS and Amen. I think it's a really powerful tool. 
but I, I think these 21st century ways that are more decentered, more fluid, they require some thought, require a good dose of digital literacy in order to work. But I think these are much more effective and much more powerful. And that's, I mean, that's why and th this is, this is a future like always that we make together and we have to act in these kind of collaborative collective ways and to learn about it. That's, that's one of the ways, I mean, my own work, I, I publish a lot of information, but one of the ways I can do it is because all these people around the world make me more knowledgeable because they bring stories to me. They bring ideas to me. They ask me questions every day and that just amplifies what I can do. And um, I think we should really be doing that. We should really be thinking in that kind of collective crowd way. Are you optimistic that the story that we do fashion here in the next probably two, three decades is going to be a positive one? For education or for the world? Both. I'm not sure about the world. I think, you know, here's this, uh, there's this great passage. Uh, you're talking about that transition state and, um, there's this fantastic quote I found from uh, Paulo Freire. He said, um, it is a time of confrontation, this transition. The time of transition of the old society to a new one that doesn't exist yet, that's being created with a confrontation of the ghosts. <laughs> and, and I worry about how long it's going to take to get past the ghosts. I think overall I'm optimistic about humans, and I'm very optimistic about education. I just hope that we can imagine and act our way through it uh, with a minimum of friction and with a great deal of creativity. And educators, that's what we do. That's the realm that we work in. So I, I, I think we have a lot of capacity for that. And I'm very optimistic in that score. Well, Brian, it's been great catching up. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, I, I, I hope you're right. I, my sense of it is that it's going to be a very interesting <laughs> 20, 30 years as we kind of figure out how to learn our way through this or not. And uh, I do think that education has a huge role to play. And I really appreciate all your, your efforts to help us understand a lot of those very complex things that are happening in the world. So appreciate it. Thank you so much, Will. I really appreciate your work in general. I always have, and I really appreciate this opportunity. So what can you do right now after listening to everything that Brian had to say? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First, follow Brian on Twitter and read his blog. I wasn't lying when I said that he was one of my go-to resources for news about higher education, climate, and many of the other geopolitical changes that are happening that are important context for the way we do our work in schools. Second, I would urge you to pick up Yuval Harari's book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. I just can't recommend that book highly enough if you're serious about looking more deeply into the challenges and opportunities of this moment. And finally, don't forget to listen to our other podcasts around story this month. Next week, I'll be taking a look at how one school district in Massachusetts is being highly intentional about changing the story of school in the minds of parents and the community, and you really won't want to miss this. Until then, I hope you click over to modernlearners.community and keep this conversation going. Cheers, everyone, and thanks so much for listening.